Hello, listeners. This is the Hypnothesis Podcast, and I am your host, Elliot Weisbluth. On today's episode, we had a very special guest, and that guest's name was David J. Peterson. Now, David Peterson is most widely known for creating the Dothraki and High Valyrian languages for HBO's Game of Thrones. He's a conlanger by trade, so you might be wondering, what is conlanging? Well, conlang is a compound word made up of the words constructed language. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a language that is created rather than formed naturally. And that's obviously very interesting. There's a lot that goes into it. So we got into the weeds. We talked about conlanging, what uh, David's experience with it was, what the community is like. We talked about the general approach to creating a new language, the inspirations for Dothraki and High Valyrian, and what it's like having your job being to invent languages for TV shows. David was an executive producer for the 2017 documentary Conlanging, The Art of Crafting Tongues, which I watched in preparation for this interview. It's a beautiful insight into the esoteric world that is conlanging, and the conlangers, the community of people who contributed to making the documentary speak for themselves on it. It really is wonderful, and I can't recommend it enough. And David has also worked on the upcoming Dune film. He's worked on Defiance and Bright, as well as so many more that I can't even think of off the top of my head. He's an extremely interesting person, and it was a pleasure talking to him. Now, you might notice that I don't have any ads, and that's because nobody listens to this goddamn podcast, whatever. Um, but the good way to get more people to listen to it would be to uh, go on to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a review that says something nice like, Hey man, got a good podcast, really like listening to it. You know, something like that. Anything that you can think of is good. Um, and maybe in the future it can get sponsored or something like that. But you know, it's no pressure. If you'd like to connect, you can follow me at hypnothesis underscore pod. That's hypnothesis underscore pod on Twitter or Instagram. And if you're interested in more of David's work, you can go to artoflanguageinvention.com. It's his hub for most of his work, and he's also active in dothraki.com. Or you can just flip on the television, and you're probably going to hear a constructed language that this guy made. David's also authored a few books, the most recent one being Create Your Own Secret Language, Invent Codes, Ciphers, Hidden Messages, and more. It's a cool little children's intro to conlanging. You can find it on Amazon. Anyway, with that, this is the Hypnothesis Podcast. Really, time is only experienced by the events which occur within it. And in denying their humanity, we betray our own. No, I won't yield. One of the aspects of God came to the earth, mind you. And look at what's out there. Um, what are you known for? Ah, well, I'm known for creating the languages for HBO's Game of Thrones, as well as for many other shows, uh, some of the uh, and movies. The recent ones being like uh, The Witcher on Netflix, The 100 on the CW, uh, a couple of the Marvel movies, Thor The Dark World and Doctor Strange, uh, uh, the upcoming Dune film. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Um, I, I'm also on a show, uh, Motherland, uh, Fort Salem on Freeform with uh, Jesse Sams. We're working together. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, so it's been a, it's been a bunch of them, but I think those are probably the better known ones. Yeah, definitely. And it's a super fascinating profession. The idea of language invention seems like something that's very personal to a small community of people um, called the conlangers. That's the that's the term for it, right? Short yep. for constructed languages. So I, I'm kind of wondering what got you into conlanging in the first place. Why is it interesting? Uh, well, when I was an undergraduate at UC Berkeley, I was taking a number of language courses uh, because I had an interest in learning as many different languages as I could. I was taking Arabic, I took Russian, I took French, uh, and then I took a language called Esperanto, which was a created mm -hmm. language. It was a language that was created in 1887 for international communication. 
uh, and and it was a lot of fun. Uh, but then when I took uh, Linguistics 5, uh, an introductory linguistics course, uh, that was what really gave me the idea to create my own language. The, the uh, I guess, uh, studied many different phenomena for many different languages without, you know, actually learning the languages mm -hmm. gave me the idea to create a language that uh, only utilized the linguistic phenomena that I enjoyed. And so I started creating my own language right away. Uh, right. Once I reasoned that I could do it if, you know, I wasn't creating it for international communications. If instead I was just creating it for myself. Uh, that kind of mm -hmm. gave me... Uh, personally it gave me the license to do it um, as opposed to creating an international language because I thought Esperanto had had that covered at that time. Right. And Esperanto was never a personal project, right? It, it was something that was intended to be easier for people to learn and pick up on. Do you think writing for yourself gave you uh, the creative freedom to create a language that was more interesting and deep? Uh, theoretically, yes, but in practice for that first language, no. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it's, it's one thing to have freedom, but it's another thing to know what to do with it, uh, right. because you could do whatever you want. Uh, the language I ended up creating was very poor quality, um, because mm -hmm. I didn't have a, a clear goal other than that I was just creating a language, uh, and I assumed that whatever I created would be good enough, uh, as opposed to having... A very specific set of guidelines or a very specific goal you know what am i going to do with this language what is the aesthetic going to be what is what is the point going to be uh, mm -hmm. beyond mere existence right uh, and, and so because i didn't have that the first language i created it was really really poor quality really poor quality it um it was designed in some ways to be easy to learn though other things were quite difficult uh, to learn mm -hmm. it was designed to be to include natural phenomena I had seen in languages I enjoyed, but it didn't incorporate them in any kind of a meaningful way. And right. so it was very haphazard in design. Uh, I tried to just include all different kinds of sounds without regard to how they fit together. So it didn't sound very good. Um, and then it was just a grab bag of vocabulary. Um, it was, supposed to go to kind of like not even a fictional culture but a theoretical fictional culture when i didn't create but mm. i also wanted to use it in real life at the same time so the vocabulary was all over the place it just it just didn't it didn't fit anything it was an absolute monstrosity <laughs> right um, and <laughs> so yeah it wasn't any good at, at what point did you make the transition from you know, fervently working on this to thinking that it was just an absolute monstrosity. Was it something that happened down the road after you got a bit of perspective? Yeah, it was about a year. I, I want to say, I think it was about a year. Um, and it was two things, really. I, part of it was studying languages more mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, studying linguistics more. But uh, a larger part was meeting the uh, greater conlanging community online and learning from them, you know, studying their languages, seeing what it was they did. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I, it was really just exposure and time to the point where I finally realized that what I was doing was not what I thought it was. And, right. and that was really the, the key distinction. Mm -hmm. um, not that, you know, I was I discovered that my goal was unworthy, but that the goal I had was something that I was not meeting, and I thought I was. Uh, and so once I realized that, it was like, well, of course, there's there's no purpose to this anymore. I am not fulfilling my own vision. So what's the point mm -hmm. of this? So I immediately stopped and and started working on a, a new language um, right. until that one ended up, you know, doing the same thing. Um, and not meeting my goal. And so then I abandoned it and started something else. And I kept doing that, you know, mm -hmm. dozens of times. Right. And what, what was this introduction to the greater Conlanging community like? Because I'd imagine it's something that you don't really expect to find. Um, was it, was it uh, interesting? Was it surprising? It was uh, very, very exciting and very, very disappointing at the same time. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think many other language creators had a similar experience uh, because I, 
among other things, I thought I was the first person to ever create a language for fun. <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. I wasn't familiar with any others that had been created for anything other than international communication, uh, right. or, or like a thought experiment or a science experiment you know, from like the 17th century. Um, and so that was, that was deflating and disappointing as it's like, you know, I thought there was a new market I had discovered and that I had it <laughs> cornered. Yeah. Um, I also assumed that I was the best. I continued assuming that I was the best for some time. Uh, it took a while for me to understand that now far from being the best I was a complete and total beginner um, and mm -hmm. a lot of work uh, and plus you know it's a, it's another thing when it's like you know it's one thing you know like real life introductions are kind of like it's like hey here is this person hello person you know here is the background for all these other people but like with mm -hmm. online communities, it's always in medias res, you know, you're always um, jumping into a community that is in the middle of a discussion that is a branch off of 10 other discussions. Um, mm -hmm. Many people have been there for years and years and years. Nobody takes notice of you when you first uh, join in. And certainly nobody's going to introduce you to other people or basic resources because that's just not the way online communities work. It's just yeah. like a current. You just jump in at one point and figure things out, or you don't, and you end up leaving disappointed, even though it's not <laughs> anybody's fault. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, that's that's kind of what it was like at the beginning, um, and it really took a while, I think, for um, for me to find my place in that community for yeah. for people to warm up to me because I was not I was not very I was not very kind when I joined in. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, you bring along with it. I just had a lot of assumptions about, you know, what I was doing and what everybody else was doing. Um, right. And so, you know, I was in my early 20s. That's, <laughs> I mean. I know the feeling. kind of how it is. Yeah. Oh, that's right. You do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's super interesting. Um, when, when you found this community, and I, I assume it's a, a larger group of people communicating their languages amongst each other. Did it make you want to create a language that was easier to demonstrate to other people? Uh, no, no, no. So uh, what it is, is uh, it, it really is for people behind the scenes. I mean, you, you mm -hmm. certainly people show off their languages and everything. But, but no, we're not communicating in or with our languages. Uh, it's never really the point. It was about right. uh, constructing them and, and you know, sharing strategies, learning from others, asking questions about how to how each of us could better achieve our own aims, really. Gotcha. So it's more of a way to bounce ideas off of people to achieve a, a personal goal. So yeah. that must be a really interesting experience to see other people speaking languages that you've created. Did you ever think that that was going to happen? Uh, at one point I did, sure. And then once I, you know, kind of really got to know the Conlangan community and, and learned some of their stories, I realized that was... A, uh, an absurd impossibility um, <laughs> right. that, uh, the, that type of thing was never going to happen um, and, you know, at that point when you realize that it's either uh, you keep on with this because you enjoy it or you abandon it because it's like oh nobody's going to nobody's going to be speaking my languages and think they're all cool it's like yeah whatever <laughs> but I didn't yeah. care about that um, because I really enjoyed what I was doing so what point was there in stopping yeah, exactly. So now that you've created languages for Game of Thrones um, and the other extensive list of programs, there's a community of people who are interested in speaking Dothraki and interested in Valyrian. Have you had much interaction with these people? Honestly, no. Um, you know, at the beginning, especially while I was working on the show, there was very little interest whatsoever. Um, I kind of assumed <laughs> that there would be with the phenomenon <laughs> right. of, of Klingon and actually even the more recent phenomenon of not me. Mm -hmm. But uh, I was, I was quite disappointed at first. Yeah. There was maybe six people. I mean, total mm. that were, that were actually interested in learning anything about the language or using it or anything like that. Um, very mm -hmm. little interest whatsoever. So I just kind of stopped thinking about it for a while. Right. Um, I guess, uh, you know, and, and, that initial community, whatever it was, it basically died, I think, 
Um, because really, I mean, six people, you know, um, <laughs> none, none yeah. of whom are in the same location. So mm -hmm. didn't, you know, there wasn't enough momentum. There wasn't a critical mass. Um, so then there was, I guess, yes, there is a new community now, like especially for Dothraki, I guess, well, also for Valyrian a little bit. Um, and I don't understand when it started or where it came from. Mm -hmm. or how active it is i mean i mean based on my experience i wouldn't expect it to be super active right right i don't know there was just never as much interest um in the languages i created so i but like i also haven't had a lot of contact with anybody in those communities um mm -hmm. and i also i don't know where their hubs are i think it's discord and yeah had a hard time adjusting to discord i was really into slack um mm. and it looks like it looks like slack is going to go by the wayside and discord is going to win which sucks yeah. because you can't thread it in discord so i don't even understand like the point <laughs> right yeah it's going to be tough maybe translating things into dothraki on discord as well if it doesn't offer that language's support you know yeah. well they do fine i assume yeah i don't doubt it you know, I think it would be interesting to consider Dothraki um, as a language to expose the process of language creation a little bit. So when you were first considering Dothraki, what kind of things were you thinking about? What was the what was the process? It's different from any of the other languages I created because I was working with material that already existed. Um, George R. R. Martin had created a handful of words and then also, well, a few words, like a, a lot of names and some phrases uh, for Dothraki. And so I, um, I had to keep those as canon, which meant that mm -hmm. uh, initially there, there wasn't any creation or anything. It was simply cataloging all the material that existed uh, in the books, um, analyzing its phonological structure so that I could replicate it. Uh, so figuring out what sounds there were and then figuring out what patterns those sounds occurred in and then creating more words that fit those patterns. So it looked like the words that were in the books, you know, came directly right. from my languages and weren't outliers. Um, and then the same thing was true for the grammar. So for all the phrases, you know, the, not the one-off words, those didn't mean anything, but the, the, the phrases and sentences. I'd analyze the, um, you know, the syntactic structure, the morphological structure of those, uh, of all those phrases and see if, they cohered see if they made sense mm -hmm. right right um so that was that was step one luckily they did make sense and then i had to figure out you know what sense they made in other words um yeah if they were consistent right and then uh, figure out what those rules were uh that were present um and then make those rules the building blocks for further rules so create rules that fit with those patterns mm -hmm. um and then move on from there. And then once I had accounted for every single scrap of data that was in the books, um, then I moved on from that point and created the rest of the language so that it could be a fully mm. functional language. And, right. um, and then, yeah, once I was, uh, once I was kind of like, once I kind of had that, uh, then I was able to tackle new translation and really move on uh, with the language continue making it my own at that point right how, do, how did you convince the producers at hbo that your version of dothraki was the one that they should choose what was what was the process like getting getting hired for that job well there was a, a competition that was announced to language creators everywhere uh and so i applied with many other language creators uh, and it was going to be uh, two rounds of judging the first was by other language creators so uh, mm. I passed through that round and was one of the five finalists. Um, and then we got a chance to kind of beef up our submissions for the final round. And then uh, the producers made the final choice among uh, four of the finalists. One dropped out. And so um, the uh, I, uh, basically my, my goal was twofold. was one to create something that was, you know, maximally authentic and match mm -hmm. the aesthetic that I thought George R. R. Martin was going for. Um, so that, you know, they would be able to hear it and say, yes, this sounds like exactly what we were imagining. So that was step number one. And then step number two 
was to create so much material that was so linguistically dense um, that they would honestly feel bad not giving me the job because of how much work <laughs> I put in. I, right. It's only it's only like a month long that we had to do that uh, to create our proposals, and I had I gave them more than uh, three hundred pages uh, worth of material, wow. um, and so I really. I really think that that was a factor uh, is the fact that I was able to like more than double the output of all of the other finalists combined. Um, <laughs> wow. It's a non-insignificant factor, I think. Yeah, I, I don't doubt it. So so once you got into it, what was your relationship like with, with the film crew? Like, were you someone who was just sending bits of text saying this is what they're going to say? Or did you speak the language to p- demonstrate the pronunciation or work with the actors and actresses? Sent them all my materials, so all the translations, and then recorded every line. Um, you know, as I always record every line. So they just listen and repeat. Uh, after all, everybody's got, everybody had smartphones by then. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's really no reason not to do that. Um, but yeah, never interacted with the actors, um, had minimal interaction with the, you know, the writing staff over, over email. Um, Mm -hmm. I I did go get to go to several uh, premiere events where I, where I met lots of the actors and the producers and everything like that. But in general, no, I was never on set. I never worked with the actors. They just sent them my materials and hope for the best. And most of the time (laughs) it was all right. Right. So would uh would you have to wait until the show came out to see the final the final product and then yep. you know have either your heart jump or sink on the based on the result? Yep, uh, that was the way it was on Game of Thrones. That's the way it is on most of the stuff mm-hmm. I work on. Every so often, um, every so often it's different. On Defiance, I reviewed all the dailies, so uh, or at least all the dailies that had my language stuff in it, um, and and I gave them feedback. So that was nice. Um, mm-hmm. On on Bright on Netflix, I was on set every day. So that was really that was really rewarding. Um, and then I've had you know, everything in between, where it's like no no contact whatsoever, even even less than Game of Thrones, or like in between, where um, every so often I'm just sent uh, a few scenes uh, just for comment, um, but not like all of them. Yeah. Oh, that's super interesting. Have, did you ever have a moment um, where you heard a line and thought, "Man, they they botched it. They they messed it up." Oh, every season, every season, every show. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> maybe maybe a better question to ask is how is how often do they get it perfectly right? <laughs> every so often, yeah. Mm-hmm. Every so often, it's it's very it's very very good, and. Um, and certainly, there are a few um, there are a few instances that stand out in my mind from my career. Um, uh, one is uh, one is actually uh, Lucy Fry, uh, who played uh, the elf girl on Bright. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was an extraordinary experience because uh, I worked with all of those actors one on one, and was there on set every single day. Um, and so before we started filming, I had one-on-one sessions with each of the actors, Mm -hmm. uh, to get them up to speed on what they were doing. Um, and it was like, you know, an hour long session with each of them. Sometimes I asked for an additional hour, uh, and reviewed things with them. Um, but Lucy Fry came in and I said, okay, you got all your lines? Like, yeah. And I was like, can I hear you do them all? And she says, okay. And she goes through every single line. And does every single one absolutely perfectly, every single inflection, every single wow. stress, every sound was 100% perfect. And it's like, you know, this was not my first session. I'd done several yeah. of these. And this is like, we're five minutes in. It was like, so do you have any notes? I'm like, honestly, not really. <laughs> that <laughs> yeah, was perfect. Wow. And I was like, I was like, I'm mean, like, honestly, you can be I was like, okay, it's like, this was unusual. And I was like, but hey, like, it's just, you did so well. Ordinarily, we take the, the whole hour. And so then she said, can you also translate some of these extra lines that she just made up so that I could throw them in periodically? 
And I'm like, for that performance, yeah, I'll do whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> and and then I was on set, you know, every single day mm-hmm. that all the actors had lines. And I would I would help them out. I would give them feedback, um, you know, after takes and things like that. But when it was mm-hmm. just her, they still called me to the set. But basically, I just grabbed some snacks and sat yeah. back and enjoyed myself. <laughs> she didn't make right. a single mistake the entire production. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's was, incredible. I was flabbergasted. I'd never seen anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, was, that one was a really memorable experience. Another one was um, on Defiance. Um, you know, there were a lot of main characters who did a lot of my alien languages a lot of the time. And then every so often for these episodes, you know, they bring in an actor who's going to be in there for one episode, right? Just a yeah. couple of lines. Um, by rule, they were usually not very good. Um, and you can expect that. They're, they, they have no background in this. They have no practice. They're coming in and they're saying, you're going to be performing these lines in a new language, something they've never done before. Mm-hmm. And because they're just day players, they really don't get a lot of the scaffolding that the main cast does. Um just because they need to spend their resources somewhere else. They're not going to take all this time to bring them up to speed. Um, but one of them, Hannah Cheeseman, came in, and I was absolutely blown away by her, by her performance. I think she was only in two episodes, and she had like four lines. And I reviewed all the dailies for this show, remember, and I was stunned that every single take she did was perfect. Wow. Every single one. Yeah. <laughs> it was ridiculous. And not only that, mm-hmm. she was speaking a language that her character was not so, supposed to be technically fluent in. And even so. So, like, it wouldn't have even right. mattered if she was not as good. But even yeah. so, she was perfect. And every single take, perfect. I mean, it was extraordinary. I, sur- I made sure to let everybody on production know to let her know how wonderful a job she did. Um, mm-hmm. And then f- my my top experience um at least for me personally was on game of thrones uh and it was uh, the character jacob anderson played gray worm uh because yeah. by season three i'd seen performances you know by uh, many different actors and honestly uh, many of them were disappointing um and that a lot of them sounded good uh most of the time but lots of mistakes lots mm-hmm. of mistakes and it was it was disappointing and then uh, Jacob Anderson comes on um, playing Grey Worm. And he delivers his first line. I was like, oh, my. <laughs> and as he keeps going, I'm listening to him. I'm like, he sounds better in this language than I do. Yeah. <laughs> He's hands down better than I am. I want to try mm-hmm. to sound like that. And I had certainly not experienced that to that point. Wow. He was so extraordinary. And it just absolutely blew my mind. Um, just a wonderful, a wonderful joy. And from then on, um, hearing him deliver his lines. Right. I was, I was low-key disappointed when they had his character learn English. I'm like, come on, man. Do that to me. <laughs> yeah, I want to hear a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so when when you're uh, writing these languages, when you're, when you're creating them, are you uh, speaking out loud? when you to to inform the grammar or the sound of it or specific little parts of the spellings i mean eventually i'm speaking every single line out loud right, right. so mm-hmm. uh, but you know as as i'm creating it yeah you know a little bit to make sure it sounds all right um mm-hmm. it's yeah i guess i guess it's not as as, as huge a deal um as for when I'm actually, you know, recording lines, then it becomes a much bigger deal. Uh, that's actually the point in time where if I'm recording a line and I don't like the sound of something, I go and check and see if a word has been used on the show yet. And if not, I change it. Just, <laughs> just yeah. like it. Or yeah. retranslate or something. But I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, could, you can't really do that at the beginning stages because what gives a language its character is the sound that it develops. Um, and, and the sound that develops is a result of the grammar, um, just the, the way that it's built. Uh, and so it's really important to focus on kind of like creating a naturalistic grammar uh, so that the end result will just sound naturalistic without you mm-hmm. having to worry about 
getting you know one little sentence perfect, but then you go to the others and they don't sound very good because you perfected this one sentence, but nothing else, you know. Right, and there are conlangs that are unspoken, right? It's mm-hmm. not necessary for a constructed language to have a spoken component. Um, yeah. One of the most fascinating languages that I came across in the Conlang documentary was between this couple that had invented a whole language just tapping on each other's knuckles in different different uh, forms. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting because it shows how creative and how you know out of the world of real languages you can get with this. And it really does seem like a like a creative venture. Um, one of the most creative people i thought one of the people that i was struck by in that documentary was john quijada and i know that you have said before that you draw inspiration from john quijada so i i was wanting to ask you what what about john quijada is um interesting to you yeah by the way first uh, that the gripping language was created by Sai and alex fink uh mm-hmm. and both of them are berkeley graduates just just like me <laughs> So, yeah. Are they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. S- strong Berkeley connection. Mm. Uh, John is uh, John is at this point. John is a very good friend of mine. Um, mm. John Quijada lives up in uh, in Sacramento, um, and so we see we see each other a lot. He was actually he was the last person that visited us before COVID. Oh no um, way! Yeah, it was in very early March. So yeah, I was glad I got to see him. Uh, again, ordinarily, ordinarily we we see each other because he comes down or I go up like a few times a year. It's, mm-hmm. But you know, who knows when we'll get to actually see each other again? But you know, we <laughs> yeah. talk on the phone and stuff like that. But um, John, it's it's funny because if you look at our individual projects, you might think that we don't really share a lot in common as language creators. Um, most of my time is spent creating naturalistic languages. Um, so, you know, languages that are supposed to emulate the quirks and irregularities of, of, of natural languages. And and John's mm-hmm. project, you know, his lifelong project is Ithquail, which is a language mm-hmm. that um, absolutely throws naturalism out the window. And it's supposed to be, um, I guess, it's supposed to express as much information as possible, um, as specifically as possible, in as small a space as possible. Um, mm-hmm. And those constraints are taken very seriously. Um and then the, the language builds out basically as a result of those constraints. Right. Um, however, I, I would say more than more than any other conlanger, I think uh, the the approach that John and I have is is most similar. Um, and which is, if you look at the top down level, starting with a very serious goal and then taking that goal seriously and keeping that goal in mind throughout the entire project. Um, and I think that that was initially what I responded to the most. Because, I mean, the first thing I saw from John was his, his Ithquil website. Mm-hmm. Um, and I appreciated, uh, and it, I think it helped to clarify for me exactly what I wanted to do as a conlanger. What I appreciated was his saying at the outset, this is the point of this language. This is exactly what I'm doing with it. And this is why, and this is a full explication of why. And then the rest of his website is, you know, spelling that out. This is the language I created mm-hmm. as a result. Um, and, and it's as if he's constantly asking you, check back with my goal. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, if you're, if you're looking at the say, well, that doesn't sound very good. Does that have anything to do with the language? Is that an important critique at all? No, of course mm-hmm. it isn't. It's, it doesn't matter what it sounds like to you. It doesn't matter what it sounds like to anybody. That's not right. the point. And, and I really admired that. And how how stringently he was able to keep to that, and in fact, as how stringently he keeps on with that, because he's actually reinvented that language several times, and he's going through another process of reinvention right now, um, mm. where again he's got a very a very specific top level goal and is trying to meet it, um, and and it's like when you see a project like that especially when you see something that was as beautifully laid out as the Ithquil website, the very first one that was really just dropped on the Conlang community out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it makes you, 
I mean, well, one of two things, either you look at it and just kind of, you know, roll your eyes and say, whatever, I'm not doing that, that doesn't affect me, or it makes you very seriously question, what is it that I'm doing? You know, he's taken this project so seriously and explicated it so well, what am I doing? You know, what is the point to all these languages I'm creating? Um, And it's not as if uh, his point is better than mine or vice versa. It's just articulated. And so that was so mm-hmm. important to me. I was like, no, this he's onto something here. You can't criticize a language. You can't say anything about a language if you don't have this very clearly, very well articulated point. And that should be the starting point, not anything else. Uh, and so I've always really admired that. And I've always tried to kind of aspire to that ideal. Um, mm-hmm. Nevertheless, I have never created anything where i mean you know forget naturalism non-naturalism just from the outsider's perspective i've never created anything as good as the ithkoil language anything as well articulated or nor anything carried out as well um Mm. and i don't expect that i ever will um (laughs) but that's but that's fine it just gives you a goal to shoot for you know yeah i mean john quijada is I had thought of him almost like a sleeping genius. It's like this guy out of nowhere who is so eloquent, who's able to put words into such beautiful terms that it can't help but to capture you. Um, if it's okay, just for the for the listeners, I want to read mm. a sentence in English that John Quijada constructed. And this is from the documentary yeah. um, about, about the painting. And this in Ithkuil is a sentence of seven words which means descend at oblique angle imaginary representation of a woman as self-initiator of action that's another word the next word um if i try to pronounce it i'll butcher it um feel free to correct me if you know it means without a set of clothing as coverage the next word tenal elqua along the directional vector of an imaginary representation of a staircase. This is how specific this is getting. This word means along the directional vector of an imaginary representation of a staircase. The next, um, what looks like in English terms to be a compound word, palsy, being in the midst of a repetitive series of single manifestations. And the last word, algoikstulnambu, (laughs) <laughs> please please excuse my pronunciation and i'm so sorry mm-hmm. to all the ithquil um enthusiasts that are wanting to wring mm-hmm. my neck right now which says by means of a tightly integrated set of ambulatory body movements which combine into a three-dimensional wake behind her forming a timeless emergent whole to be considered intellectually emotionally and aesthetically and yeah wow i mean you read something like that and that it, it just drives straight to the heart i mean yeah, he is, he is truly inspiring. Yeah, that uh, that particular uh, translation uh, was for me a real moment. He did that for um, when he went to give a presentation in uh, Russia uh, for people that were interested in his language, uh, and so he showed that to me, and it was such a profound moment for me because uh, I knew the painting, and you know I'm not. I am by no means somebody who is super interested in painting uh, or beyond a very superficial level. Um, so it's like with abstract art, I was like, oh, I like that. That's that's neat. But that's about as, mm-hmm. as in-depth as I go. Um, right. Reading that description did two things for me. One, it, it forever changed the way that I saw the painting. Um, it helped me to understand what the painter was doing like how you could even call that a new descending stairs. It just looked like nothing to me, right? Mm, or I was just like, yeah, eh, whatever. But, and then, so it did all that. It made me look at the painting differently and understand it differently and appreciate it better. Uh, but it also, uh, I mean, quite literally, it told you what John saw in that painting. Uh, because, of right. course, there, there may be other interpretations. I happen to think that was a really spot on one. But it's, you know, to be able to create a language that allows you to 
I guess, examine your own biases and your own thoughts and express them so well is wonderful. Because, of course, as we've just demonstrated here, uh, you read it in English. So we understand mm -hmm. what it means in English. But the exercise of that, translating that into Ithquil is what helped him to clarify exactly what it was he saw and understood from that painting. Uh, the, the very act of using Ithquil is, is something kind of like an intellectual exercise or a philosophical exercise. It's an experience. Right. It was wonderful. It truly is. Do you mind if I ask, of the language or maybe languages that you're most passionate about, what your articulate goal for them is? For, for what? This is per, um, for, for, any, for the language that you feel most personally connected to, um, the one yeah. that, that would inspire you. And if this is personal, that, that's totally okay. We can, we can move along. I, I can't think of a language that I have a stronger connection to than any other. Mm. Uh, I mean, there are languages I've used more than others. Uh, there are languages that came before others. So like, <laughs> right. you know, I'll always have a connection to that first language, even though it's terrible and I don't like it. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Dothraki, I used a whole lot. Valyrian, I used a whole lot. Castathan, I used a whole lot. Uh, Trigeta slang, I used a whole lot. These are languages that I've used so much that um, mm -hmm. I kind of remember them more than any others. Um, just right. because I, I, I use them more than any others, simply by working on those shows longer than other shows and also using those particular mm -hmm. languages on the show more than other languages from those shows. Um, so that's just, it's just right. different, but it's like, it's not as if there's anything about those languages that are special. It's just yeah. that I have spent more time with them. Right. Um, the language that I think was, was my language that I loved more than any other, uh, Kamakawi, I now um, don't enjoy as much. Um, mm. Because I've, I guess I've reframed the way I look at those types of languages. Um, in that, uh, Kamakawi was a language that was very clearly an homage uh, to Hawaiian. It used mm -hmm. uh, some, like at least one element of Hawaiian directly. Uh, other, otherwise, it was trying to kind of evoke the sense of Hawaiian, um, but it's not Hawaiian. And I just don't, I don't really believe in that type of a project anymore. Okay. I don't. I don't know if I want to go so far as to say I don't think it's a good use of time, but it's just not something that I can be proud of in the same way anymore, even though that was mm -hmm. a language I loved more than any other for a long time. Um, and so now it's just, yeah, whatever. Whatever's on, whatever's up, I yeah. don't care. Like, I, I'm not I mean, the person that's had, like, one language for decades, you know? I, I've had... Right dozens of languages <laughs> mm -hmm. i right. enjoy doing and that it's it's almost like a difference in style i remember um one term that the documentary used was heart langing and it sounds like that's that's more of the uh people who take their languages to be their soul the people who maybe work on a single language for decades and decades but it's not it's not the necessary condition for creating languages it's something that you can do and excel at and enjoy as you do with multiple languages and for yeah. these particular purposes. Um, now, earlier we were talking about the act of translating something into Ithquil, like taking the interpretation of that painting and forming it into a way that helps you understand the world a little bit better. So I'm going to read this quote from The Doors of Perception because I think it's quite relevant to this, actually. And mm -hmm. I was hoping that we might be able to reflect on it a little bit. Yeah. So this is how it goes from Aldous Huxley. It says, Every individual is at once the beneficiary and the victim of the linguistic tradition into which he has been born. The beneficiary, inasmuch as language gives access to the accumulated records of other people's experience, the victim, insofar as it confirms him in the belief that reduced awareness is the only awareness, and as it bedevils his sense of reality, so that he is all too apt to take his concepts for data, his words for actual things. 
So this is this is about um, categorization. This is about putting the reality of the world into boxes using language. So I'm wondering if you think that conlanging is something of an exercise that can help you break this sort of rigid, um, you know, single language box that we've been put in. Is it something that helps you see the world more clearly? Uh, yes and no. Yes and no at the same time, because it really depends on, on your approach. Right. Um, I'm reminded of, so the philosopher, uh, I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name, Derrida, Derrida, I don't know, he's French. Anyway, <laughs> he talks about uh, how Thoth gave to Thoth writing and presented it as a gift and he presented it as what was translated into Greek. Uh, the pharmacon for man's memory, which was translated as drug. Um, and his point was that it was supposed to be translated as neither positive nor negative, but both at the same time. In that uh, writing, it will allow, you know, it would allow man to memorize, to, to keep, to commit things to memory for uh, much longer, while at the same time also you know, the the less we rely on our own memory, the less good it is. You know, the less hmm. able we are to remember things very well if we can just write them down. And so it's supposed to be both things at the same time. When you talk about uh, conlanging, um, mm -hmm. in terms of breaking out of the impressions that you have, not of the world necessarily, but of language, um, it's both at the same time. Mm. If you look at a lot of beginning uh, languages uh, by created by language creators, you will find innovation in certain areas, um, mm -hmm. different sounds, sure, um, but uh, and, and even different grammatical categories and things like that, and you know, words that are unique. But you will also see lots of places where choices were made not because the choice was deliberate but because this is the way that the creator believed that all languages worked they had never considered an alternative mm. um so you know for example it's not um it's not surprising if you say somebody creates a new language and it has a past tense a future tense but then also like a far future tense and a far past tense, things like that, but much less usual to find a language that, say, makes no tense or aspect distinction whatsoever, but only a distinction of evidentiality. Um, and this is the type of thing that does exist in the world's languages, also in conjunction with tense and aspect, depending on which language you look at, um, but doesn't really exist in English or Indo-European languages. Um, the notion that you could have verbs without tense at all is a bit alien um, right. to the mind of an English speaker. And so it's not something that you see in beginning conlangs mm -hmm. a lot of time. Um, there are also uh, other elements that you'll see, like, you know, you're creating a brand new language and the language has um, consonant clusters and it has many different types of consonant clusters and different consonants. So you could have kra and kla and things like that. Mm -hmm. You'll rarely find people drop in uh, dla and tla, that is DL and TL. Yeah. Um, not because they can't exist, but because they don't exist in English. Um, right. And the, and the creator has never imagined that there could be a language where they do exist. In fact, they do. It's, there's no problem with that. Um, it's something that you could or could not do. Um, mm. And so... When you're sitting down to make a new language, the ideal is that every choice that you have made is a choice that you have made deliberately. So there may indeed end up being things in common with English. Because you say, yeah, in this language, there will be no TL or DL clusters, because that is not something I want to have happen with this language. Right. And that's why you're making the choice. Not because, well, these, there could never be such clusters. These things could never happen. And so obviously I won't even think about it. Um, mm. So I, that's something that it takes more than conlanging because what you will end up seeing is you will see immense, uh, I guess, imagination 
and creativity in certain areas, in very specific areas of the language that you're creating, but not in others. There are blind spots that you have based on the language that you speak and languages that you learn. Um, and especially is the case because here in America, right, everybody, uh, most everybody speaks English. And if you have familiarity with another language, it's probably an Indo-European language, a language like, you know, Spanish or, or French mm -hmm. um, or even German or Italian, um, something that's very closely related to our languages comparatively, to English right. comparatively speaking. Um, and so you'll get negative reinforcement um, in that there will be things that you can't do in English, that you also can't do in French, that you also can't do in German. And so it builds up in you in the sense, oh, wow, this really must be something that can't happen in languages, but it's not true. Um, and so it is a process for all language creators. Um, it requires, you know, continuing to work on creating languages, but it also requires continuing to study uh, human languages, different ones. So not mm -hmm. English, Spanish, or French, but maybe uh, English, Vietnamese, and Turkish. That'll give you a sense of how things can really be different. Um, also studying linguistics, because that's the quickest right. way to get like, you know, here, here are different things. They, they do yeah. the work for you. You don't have to study the whole language. Um, and then as you accumulate this knowledge, continuing to question where is the boundary between what's possible uh, and what's impossible, and where is the boundary between what is natural uh, versus what is simply not attested? There are many mm. of thing, there are there are many things that could occur in the languages that we speak on Earth that don't happen to simply because we haven't seen a language that does it. It doesn't mean that it's not natural. It doesn't mean that it couldn't happen. It just means it didn't happen to. Whereas there are also things that are completely impossible that you would never expect that couldn't exist in a language, and also things that are impossible for a natural language, but that absolutely could exist um, and mm -hmm. could be usable. And a very nice example is imagine that we always had to, um, just like with evidentiality, where you have to inflect the verb based on how true you believe what you're saying is, and that's something that exists in many languages. Um, mm. You could also have a language where you inflect the verb based on the color of the shirt you're wearing. <laughs> right. um, so, yeah. so we would be speaking with different verb inflections, and it wouldn't matter <laughs> if we couldn't see each other. We'd know what color shirt we were wearing, right? Yeah. So that's something that yeah. is possible, right? Mm -hmm. It's possible in that it's very easy to imagine. Very easy to imagine. It's a small system. You could easily build yeah. it on any language, uh, and humans could learn it. Very simply. But we know, we know that that will never, ever, ever, ever occur in a natural language on this planet, and you will never come across it, right? Right, right. But you could do um, it. But you could do it if you wanted to <laughs> in a con yeah. language. That's, that's a beautiful thing about conlanging. It's, it's like you get to f yeah, fill in those gaps that the uh, necessary conditions for human existence didn't quite... Uh, mandate when when the formation of language happening it's kind of, it must be kind of fun to like think about all those different sort of ways you could express meaning that aren't quite um existing in most you know latin languages one i don't know any um other languages actually besides a little bit of spanish having grown up in america i think that's a pretty common theme but it is my intuition that most other languages um, avoid some of these more fringe um, meanings. I mean, it's a simple question of practicality for a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. Like, who the hell cares? <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> right? Yeah. What color shirt you're wearing? What color right. shoes? It's not something that would be encoded on language, but it could be. So it's like, it's, it's totally unnatural and you never find it, but it's certainly possible certainly within the realm of human learnability. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's that's something that must be really be really freeing about conlanging is is the the ability to explore these concepts and make them something of your own. So quick quick question, what what um natural language fascinates you the most? Oh, I don't know about the most. The thing is, there's always something fascinating about every language. I've never mm. found one that I don't want to learn yet. Um, <laughs> right. 
initially, uh, the grammar of Arabic captivated me more than any I'd ever seen because I'd never seen a language that worked like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really enjoyed using it. Um, I, I've now come to understand a bit how it evolved, which was equally rewarding. But, uh, but yeah, that, that experience of taking Arabic for the first time is one I'll always remember. Just a, a really extraordinary experience. Mm. And what, what ways does the grammar of Arabic differ from that of, uh, of um, English that you found so interesting? Well, in English, you will see uh, different patterns in terms of roots. So it's like, uh, trying to think of one that's not Latinate. Um, you can do things like, you know, you have stand and stood, right? Understand, mm-hmm. understood. Uh, minimal buildings, so like misunderstanding, things like that, where you kind of build some words up in different ways. Um, and you also have patterns of total unrelatedness. So you have uh, book and write and library, and these words have absolutely no relationship whatsoever. Um, mm-hmm. In Arabic, uh, it there is a very interesting pattern that occurs where the pattern of consonants uh, can be associated with certain semantic areas mm-hmm. um, to an extent. Um, but like uh, a common one is a, a consonantal pattern of K, T, and B, where as long as those consonants occur in that order, you get something having to do with uh, writing or books. So kitab mm. uh, is the word for book. Kutub is books. You see K, T, and B in order. Oh. But then also katib is writer, um, maktab is uh, office, maktaba is library, library. And so you see still KTMB occurring in order, but also Whoa. with the verbs. So aktub, I write, uh, taktub, you write, yaktub, he writes, naktub, we write in the past tense. Um, katabtu, I wrote, uh, kataba, uh, he wrote, katabat, she wrote. Uh, and so on. And, and so it works with not just the verbs, uh, but also the nouns in singular and plural. Um, mm. And these individual patterns will also have, um, will be somewhat related. So uh, let's see, I, I have a harder time coming up with these off the top of my head, but it's like uh, kataba is always uh, past tense uh, masculine, uh, third person. So kataba mm-hmm. he wrote, and then um, adafa uh, he knew. Uh, what are some other verbs? Uh, gosh, I'm losing my verbs. Uh, uh, oh, oh, actually, I don't know how to say that one in the past. It's oh, what are some other verbs? Kara uh, uh, he read um, things that you can mm. do. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, but it's always baraba <laughs> like that. Um, yeah. And then barabat is always going to be uh, third person feminine in the past tense. You'll see a lot of a-i patterns for people. So katib is writer. Dhabit uh, is soldier. Talib is student. Walid um, uh, is father. And so on. Hmm. Wow. It, it's like there's more information encoded in the inflections of the words than there really is in english it's really it's really fascinating honestly you can Um, it allows you basically it allows hearers to guess better uh but at the same time it is a natural language so it is not good it's not cookie cutter you can't mm -hmm. it's not like if you always hear "Ah," it you know that you're gonna get a human being Right, um, mm-hmm. like "gharib" uh, is, I believe, a crow, uh, you know, a bird. I'm trying to think mm-hmm. of another one where it's just, uh, I don't know, where it's just totally off the wall. Anyway, you, you get the idea. You get the idea. Yeah, totally. Well, David, it's been about an hour. I'd like to thank you so much for coming on today. It was an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Um, super fascinating little community here and part of this earth that i'm sure our listeners are going to be really happy for having tuned in for so thank you very much yeah right appreciate on. you coming for... on go bears yeah go bears thanks for having me for sure how might you say goodbye in dothraki for us chick 
Bonus check. Thank you for tuning in to the Hypnothesis podcast. This has been your host, Elliot Weisbluth. I hope you had fun listening. I hope you're staying safe and doing well out there and you're having a good drive if you're on the road or you're having a good walk if you're walking. And um, again, if you'd like to connect, you can reach me at hypnothesis underscore pod on Instagram or Twitter. I think we're approaching 10 Twitter followers. So, you know, things are getting kind of serious. Anyway, hit me up. Send me memes. Love ya. Bye.